Let me invite you to turn to Mark's Gospel. Uh, For those of you visiting, we have been working through Mark's Gospel for a while now, usually in the evening, uh, but we've also taken a 10-week break. So it's been a while since we've been here in Mark's Gospel, so we return to chapter 13. Really, we're beginning chapter 13 here. Chapter 13, and we're going to look at the first four verses of Mark 13. If you know anything about the Gospel of Mark, Mark 13 is a daunting chapter for many preachers, myself included. This is the Olivet Discourse. Now let me refresh us a little bit, especially since it's been so long. I want you to recall that Jesus and the Twelve have been in Jerusalem. His ministry has been leading to that as Jesus has his face set like a flint to Jerusalem. And he finally made it there to the gates of Jerusalem. So we had the triumphal entry, as it's called, back in chapter 11. And now it's Passion Week. It's the week of Christ's suffering and death. So he entered on Sunday, and then there's Monday, and now it's Tuesday. He's going to be crucified on Friday. He's had an eventful day in the temple, starting all the way back at chapter 11, verse 27. So if you want to turn back there, this all has happened on Tuesday. And now as we come to our text in chapter 13, it's Tuesday evening. So Mark 11, going all the way back to chapter... Uh, to verse 27 of Mark 11, we have Jesus being questioned by the authorities, the religious authorities, there in the temple about his authority. And then you have the parable of the wicked vine dressers, which was spoken of against them. And then you have these series of questions, which are really tests. They're not sincere questions. So the Pharisees come. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? The Sadducees have a question about the resurrection. He answers all of these questions and he silences his enemies. The third questioner is a scribe asking, which is the first commandment of all? And this one, if any of them are at all sincere, this one seems to have some sincerity. And then if you look at verse 35, Jesus then begins to ask the questions. Then there are, beginning at verse 38, these pronouncements against the scribes. These were sort of the professors of the day. These were the experts, the so-called experts in the law of God. And then we saw the episode of the widow and her two mites. That's all one day, an eventful day in the temple. And now it's still Tuesday as we come to chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. Verses 1 to 2 of this chapter really concludes the previous section because what we'll see is that Jesus is leaving the temple. So it could be seen really as part of chapter 12, but then launching us into this Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. And by the way, you can turn to Matthew 24 and 25 for a parallel, a more extended version of the discourse there. Matthew gives us a little bit more. And then you could turn to Luke chapter 21. But let's just read here Mark 13, verses 1 to 4. This is speaking of Jesus here. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another. 
that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Let's again go to the Lord and seek his help and blessing. Our God, we thank you that we can be in your house. We thank you that we have your Holy Spirit, and we pray now that you would help us by your Spirit to understand your word. Lord, we pray that this section of Scripture, this teaching of our Lord, would be opened up to us, and that we would receive the message that you would have for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our Lord's discourse in Mark 13 The Olivet Discourse is sometimes also called the Little Apocalypse. The Little Apocalypse. And apocalypse is a word meaning revelation. So one man says that here in this Little Apocalypse, we have the gospel core of the material which is amplified in the book of Revelation. What Jesus gives us here is a sketch of the future in outline form. But we have a sketch of the future from that time in the first century all the way to the end when he comes back to consummate the age. And then also here, Jesus gives us a close look at the unimaginable distress that would come upon the Jews roughly 40 years later at the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that was in Jerusalem. And you see that mainly in verses 14 to 20 of this discourse. So we have this broad sweep of all of history until Christ returns, and then this also narrow focus upon this terrible event that would happen when the temple would be destroyed. Now, the importance of this discourse should be obvious to us just as we read it. But the exact meaning of certain parts of this discourse, this extended teaching of Christ, are not so clear, not so obvious. In fact, to this day, there's much disagreement between good and faithful interpreters of the word of God about this or that point here in this discourse. So, for example, you might be familiar, if you've studied this, with verses 24 to 27. We're not going to get into it today, but the question is, does this refer to the time, 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed? Or now are we focusing on the time of Christ's return? That's one of the big questions. Or what about verse 30? Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. There's much disagreement and dispute about these things. So as we come to it, we ask, how are we to navigate such a difficult text? Is it even possible for us to come to any firm convictions regarding the right interpretation of Mark 13? I do believe it is. It's possible. And in fact, on the whole, I think there are things that are abundantly clear. There's there's points that are widely disputed. And so I do think we need to come with a humble spirit and a non-dogmatic spirit on these things where true Bible believers, faithful interpreters of God's word might disagree. But the main facts we need to know are very clear. There are certain things here that we cannot disagree on. 
So for example, the fact that Jesus very accurately predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That's clear. But also that there will be tribulation, not only in the days leading up to his return, but in particular in that time, the great tribulation, there when the temple would be destroyed. And then also that Christ will return. As we just read in 2 Peter, he will return and on a day and hour that nobody but the Father knows. And then in light of this, we all must take heed, watch, and pray. That's what Jesus says in verse 33 toward the end. Take heed, watch, pray. You don't know the hour when Christ is returning. So these are some of the main things that we must see and things that are crystal clear in this text of Scripture. Since Christ will come again and will bring this present age to an end, The great question as we come to this is, will you be ready for that day? That day when Christ comes again in great power and glory. That day of judgment when all things are brought to an end. So I'm going to say at the beginning, do not be tempted to get sucked into the argument so much that you miss this most vital point. Are you ready For that day when Christ will return. Are you ready to stand before the judge? And that means have you come to Christ in faith. Trusting in him alone. Because he will be the judge. And he alone has made a sacrifice. That can pay for all of your sins. So only through him will we be ready for that great day. When he returns. So the message of the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus Christ is of the greatest importance and urgency and a text like this should cause us to see that and it should awaken us if we might be sleeping and then it should cause us to flee to Christ. Now here's my tentative plan. I want to survey this chapter, this discourse in four sermons. So I don't want to get into the weeds of every single controversy. I don't think that would be helpful. I think it would be too tedious. And we might lose sight of the forest. So what we're going to do, I'm not even going to give you my divisions. I have some proposed divisions, but those are subject to change as I study this. But today we're just looking at verses 1 to 4. Verses 1 to 4. And the title of my sermon this morning is Through Jesus' Eyes, the temple. So Jesus was the keenest observer that ever lived, even penetrating to the inner thoughts of men, seeing things that nobody else could see. And we saw this in the previous two accounts. And there we were looking through Jesus' eyes at the scribes who were so impressive to so many people, and yet Jesus saw That beneath that impressive religious veneer, there was dead men's bones and all rottenness. That's the language that we find in Matthew 23. All uncleanness on the inside. But then also we were invited to see through Jesus' eyes as he's sitting in the temple and he's observing the treasury where people are giving. And who were the people 
who were impressive in the eyes of men. It was those who were giving all of this money and throwing all their copper into the receptacles there in the temple at the treasury. So people looked at the treasury and that's what they saw. But Jesus noticed a poor widow who gave two of the tiniest copper coins, and it was that widow that he praised. So we've seen the scribes through Jesus' eyes. We've seen this widow and the treasury through Jesus' eyes. And I think now we're invited again to look at the temple that stood there in Jerusalem so impressively to look at that through our Lord's eyes. Jesus, his disciples said, look at these great stones and these great buildings. Aren't they magnificent? But Jesus would have them look and see the temple as he sees it. We have that there in verse 30, verse 2. Do you see these great buildings? He's going to say they'll be destroyed. He wants us to see through his eyes. So what we're going to do is begin with our text, verses 1 to 4. And then I want to ask at the end, how did Jesus view the temple at this time? Especially in light of the events soon to unfold in the coming days. So let's look firstly at the fact that Jesus leaves the temple for good, never to return again. That's the first thing we see in the text. Jesus leaves the temple for good. He will never come back. That's in the first part of verse 1. We read, then as he went out of the temple. This, as I said earlier, provides a conclusion to the previous section where he's been in and out of the temple over a period of a few days. And remember all that has taken place there from the triumphal entry and then to the next day because he went in and we read in chapter 11 that he looked around at all things, but it was late, so he went away from the city and from the temple with his disciples. The next day on Monday, they came back in, and that's when he cleansed the temple. He was driving out those who were selling in the temple and had desecrated the house of God, making it a den of thieves. And then he left. And then Tuesday he came, and we saw all of that conflict, the questions he was asked, and so on. And those two accounts, the scribes and the widow. Then he leaves the temple for good. And he probably goes out through the east gate of the temple where there was a steep path that would have crossed a valley known as the Kidron Valley and that would have led to the Mount of Olives where he's going to sit. And it's interesting to think about this. There might be an echo of Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 11.23. And there is a vision of the glory of God leaving the city, Jerusalem, and leaving the temple and going east and resting upon the mountain to the east. That's the Mount of Olives. So Christ leaves eastward and goes to the Mount of Olives, possibly an echo there of the glory of God leaving the temple. Now, in Matthew, this final departure of Christ is immediately preceded by Jesus' passionate lament over Jerusalem. Let me read that for you as we turn back to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, 7, we read, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. 
For I say to you, you shall not see me, or you shall see me no more, till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. We have a sober warning here. Because Jesus' departure, and certainly the destruction that would come upon the temple, that is an act of judgment upon the unbelief of the Jews in his day, and especially the leaders who rejected Christ again and again. So we have a sober warning as we see their rejection of Christ, how they refuse to repent and to turn from their sins and to turn to Christ in faith, Jesus departs. He leaves them and he announces the destruction of the temple. We're reminded that the time to repent and believe is now. It's now. Because there will come a time when the gospel is not going to be going forth. Again and again, Christ is offered to sinners here and in so many places in the world. Again and again, freely offered to sinners. But there will be one day when he will, so to speak, depart. And the destruction of all who did not obey the gospel will be announced and also will be final. So there's a sober warning as we see Jesus departing from the temple. The second thing we see here, not only that Jesus leaves the temple for good, but that he predicts the utter ruin of the temple. So secondly, Jesus predicts the utter ruin of the temple, and you see that in verses 1 and 2. As he's leaving the temple, he's almost certainly surrounded by a crowd. If you look Going back to Mark 13, if you look at verse 3, we're told that the disciples came to him privately. So that perhaps suggests that he was surrounded by a crowd as he's leaving the temple and as he's announcing its destruction. But as he's leaving, we're told that one of his disciples comes to him. Look at verse 1 again. Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. He's saying, look at their magnificence. Look how great the stones and how great the buildings. And this would be the whole temple complex that sat there in Jerusalem. They were great. Jesus even acknowledges this. He says, you see these great buildings? These were great buildings. Now, just a bit of history. This could be called Herod's temple. Herod's temple, some call it maybe the third temple, but remember that the first temple that was built by Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonians. That was back in 586 BC. And then the second temple was built by the returned exiles as they're coming back from Babylon. They build the second temple. And that was about 70 years later. But then another 500 years passed. And Herod the Great, as he was called, he was not so great, but Herod the Great began his restoration project and his expansion of that second temple. And he significantly expanded it so that that temple, Herod's temple, ended up being twice the size of the first temple. So that was the temple that stood during Jesus' day, and it was actually still under construction. Even to the time of its destruction, it was still being built and renovated. One man says that it was one of the architectural wonders of the Roman world. And we might ask, as they're saying, look at these stones and how impressive they are. Well, how big were these stones? Well, the largest found, 
just based on a little bit of research, the largest found apparently was 45 feet long. It's really big. That's probably bigger than this stage. 45 feet long, 11 and a half feet high, and 12 feet thick. And that's a stone from its foundational walls, a massive stone. So no wonder the disciples were so impressed. It was calculated for all to come to be in awe as they looked at this temple. Now, we ask the question, what besides the magnificence of the stones and of the buildings would have prompted this disciple to say this to Jesus? Why is he saying this? It's probably the words that he just spoke. And we have to go back to Matthew, what I read. You don't have to turn there. But remember, Jesus had just said before leaving the temple, see your house, O Jerusalem. Probably a reference to the temple. Your house... Not God's house anymore, it's yours. Your house is left to you desolate. That means it's left to you abandoned to be ruined. And I believe it's this that has caused them to say, but Jesus, look how magnificent it is. How could it possibly be desolate? Look at these buildings and look at these stones. But Jesus replies with a more clear word, a shocking prediction in verse 2. Jesus answered and said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Not one of those beautiful, gigantic stones would be left upon another. They would all be thrown down violently. The Greek is very emphatic here. The ruin would be complete utter ruin. And so it was about 40 years later. One man says the Roman destruction of Herod's temple in AD 70 was so complete that all that now remains is part of the substructure of the temple precincts and not of the temple buildings themselves. So this was fulfilled about 40 years later. Now you can imagine this prediction troubled the disciples very much. They could not get it out of their minds, and hence the questions of verse 3 later coming privately to him. This was in their minds. It was troubling them. And I think it's impossible for us to fully appreciate how shocking and unsettling this kind of prediction would have been to these disciples. Perhaps something like 9-11, those of you who remember And as the events were unfolding, how unsettling it was. But if somebody had said beforehand to you, you see these great structures and these symbols of our strength, economic strength and the power of this nation, these are all going to be toppled. And the Pentagon and this, and you would think it would be unsettling. I think it might be something like that, but even more. Impossible for us to fully appreciate what would have gone on in their minds and in their hearts when Jesus says it's all going to be wiped out. So we see Jesus leaves the temple for good, and he predicts its utter ruins. But, but there's a third thing here, and that is that the disciples question him privately. They question him privately, and look at verse 3. Right after his prediction, we read, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? 
And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Or when all these things are about to be brought to an end? Now, having left the temple, and he's crossed that valley, the Kidron Valley, Jesus now sits on the Mount of Olives, and Mark says he's opposite the temple. It's the same language. If you look up to verse 41, the exact same language, Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. He was sitting in the treasury there, and he was observing And that's what he's doing now. As he sits on the Mount of Olives, which would have been east of Jerusalem, he's sitting there, he's observing the temple. He would have had a very clear view of the temple sitting there on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So that's an important detail. It might have been his last view of the temple. We don't know. Surely as he takes in this view, he's thinking about the temple that he's just left and the temple that he's just announced its ruin. So what thoughts might fill his mind? We're going to come back to that later. We can't say for sure, but we do know the thoughts that were filling the minds of the disciples because we see them in these questions that they asked to Jesus, coming to him privately. There's no more crowds as he's there sitting on the Mount of Olives. So Peter... James, John, and Andrew, they come to Jesus and they question him in light of this shocking prediction of the destruction of the temple. And there's two basic things you see. The first thing they ask is, when will these things be? There in verse 4, first part of verse 4. So their concern here is about the timing. Jesus, when is this going to happen? They take him at his word. It's going to happen. When will it be? And then secondly, they ask, what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So their concern there is not the timing, but it's the sign or the indication that they should be looking for that these things are about to be fulfilled. So that's important to remember as we come back to this discourse in the coming weeks that this discourse, this little apocalypse, is prompted by these questions in verse 3. So we want to go back to verse 3 again and again as we work our way through the discourse. But also, I believe we need to go back to the parallel text in Matthew 24 because their question is expanded a little bit there. Matthew under inspiration of the Spirit, gives us a little bit fuller version of what they were asking. So not just what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled, but what will be the sign of your coming? It's a reference to his second coming. And of the end or the consummation of the age. So what's the sign of all these things, including your coming and the end of the age? So as we put all of this together, it seems that the disciples think that the destruction of the temple and the second coming of Christ and the end of all things, the end of the age, all of that's going to happen at once. It seems like that's in their mind. They're thinking, what what else could the destruction of this magnificent temple mean except the end of the world? So Jesus, we'll see, is going to seek to correct their faulty thinking on that point, that the temple would be destroyed and then he would come immediately. And then there would be the consummation of the age. So look at verse 21 in Mark 13, for example. After he talks about the great tribulation, 
And everyone agrees that's a reference to the time, AD 70, the destruction of the temple. Right after that, he talks about those days, and then he says, then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. So he's saying, when AD 70 comes and there's this great tribulation, people, if they're saying, look, Christ is coming back, don't believe them. So that's one place where we see where he's saying it's not going to be all at once that these things happen. So he's correcting some of their faulty thinking here. The key point, though, is that in his answer, in this discourse, Jesus speaks not only of the destruction of the temple, but he also speaks very clearly of his second coming, of his return, and of the end. And his focus, and this is part of what makes it so difficult to study and to sort everything out, his focus on the destruction of Jerusalem and on the end, on his coming and the end, it's going to shift back and forth. So that makes it difficult. His focus is going to go back and forth from the nearer AD 70 to the end when he comes. He's going to answer the when question. We'll look at this more, God willing, in the future. But he's going to answer their when question in two ways. You see it first in verse 30, which I read earlier. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. That present generation, he's telling them the temple's going to be destroyed in the time of those now living. And so it was 40 years later. But then he answers another time question, verse 32, but of that day and hour, that is of his coming and of the end, he says, nobody knows. I can't give you a time. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So he does answer the wind question in those two ways. He also deals with the sign question, as we'll see. And then with other things that will characterize the time between his first coming and his second coming. For example, in verse 10, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. So the worldwide spread of the gospel will characterize this time, however long, until Christ returns. So that's our text, at least, verses 1 to 4. Jesus leaves the temple for good. Jesus predicts its utter ruin, and then the disciples come with these questions to Jesus, and that's what prompts the Olivet Discourse. That's what he's answering their questions, and then he gives them a little bit more than what they asked for. Now, some final thoughts. Coming back to that question I mentioned earlier, how did Jesus view the temple at this time, Tuesday, just days before He's going to be taken by lawless hands and crucified and resurrected. What are the thoughts that might have filled his mind as he sat there on the Mount of Olives and he took in what surely was a remarkable view of Jerusalem and the temple prominently there in Jerusalem? We're not told exactly, but I think it's worth reflecting on this. What might have been in his mind as he's observing sitting opposite the temple? A few things here. And the first is that we've seen that Jesus had a reverence and a zeal for the temple. And it was because it was God's house. It was God's house. He even calls it my father's house in John 2. And so that's why he cleansed the temple. 
That's why there was that righteous anger as he sees them doing things that ought not to be done in what should have been a house of prayer for all nations. He says, you've made it a den of thieves. And so he drives them out. So there's this reverence for the temple. There's a zeal for the Lord's house that we see in Jesus. So as he's looking, surely there's still this reverence. This was the Lord's house. But the second thing then is he viewed the temple not only as his father's house and a house of prayer, but as a desecrated house, as a defiled place. Because the Jews, by and large, especially their leaders, scribes, Pharisees, and so on, they had defiled God's holy temple. What was sacred, they had made profane. So as Jesus taught about the temple that day, or as he, as he thought about the temple, as he looked at it, surely he was grieved. As he's thinking, this is my father's house, and it's been desecrated. So he's grieved at that. It could hardly be called God's house anymore. Remember, see, your house is left to you desolate. Now we need to think about this, because this temple was so outwardly impressive And how does our Lord look at it? He's grieved. And we're reminded that when we worship God, he's not concerned with how outwardly impressive our show is. Buildings and stones. They had all the stuff outwardly that would have impressed you and made you think, here is the true worship of God. But by and large, the true worship of God was not in that temple. And so we're reminded that God looks primarily at the heart. When we come here. So that's why we pray so often that our hearts are prepared to worship God. It's not just about going through the motions. It's not just about the externals. God looks at the heart. True worship is heart worship. Well, what else? He had this reverence, but he, but he also saw it as a desecrated house. And then certainly he viewed it as a house ripe for destruction. As he looked at it, I don't know that I've ever had anything like this in my mind except just looking at creation and knowing all of these things are going to be done away with and there will be a renewal of all things. But he's looking at this as something that he knows is going to be wiped out. So he sees it as a house ripe for destruction as he's sitting there. And maybe he's thinking about those great stones and those buildings as he's sitting on the Mount of Olives and how they're going to be violently cast down, not one upon another. And as he's thinking about that, he's thinking about how that day will be a day of God's righteous wrath and judgment against his people. And yet the thought of it must have stirred his heart to compassion, even as he thinks of the righteous judgment that would fall upon Jerusalem and the temple, his heart is stirred with compassion. And I think we see that in the discourse as he's giving warnings and saying, flee, when you see this happening, go. So there's compassion, there's mercy there. These are the sorts of things that might have been filling his mind. He tells people, we will see how to escape the great tribulation of that day. And so he gives instructions to all of us for escaping a greater, far greater tribulation of the day of judgment. He gives us the gospel. 
He calls sinners to himself. But here's a fourth thing, and this will be a little bit more full. Because as Jesus viewed the temple that Tuesday evening, sitting on the Mount of Olives, he must have viewed it in light of what he knew would happen soon to him. That he would suffer many things, he would be crucified, he would be buried, and he would rise again. He must be thinking of it in light of all that he would soon accomplish and as something, therefore, that he would soon render obsolete, becoming the mediator of the new covenant by means of his death. So I think Jesus must have been looking at the temple as something that he's going to render obsolete in a matter of days. Though it will take a lot longer for people to realize this, and some people never would. So, for example, he knew that there would no longer be this central place of worship. You remember Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman in John 4. He talks about this. There's no longer going to be this central place of worship, the temple there in Jerusalem. The hour had come when the true worshipers would worship the Father in spirit and truth in every place. John 4.23 He also knew that God's dwelling place on earth would no longer be the Jerusalem temple there, but it would be his people, the people of God, the church filled and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That would be the new spiritual temple of God. And we find this emphasis in the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters. And I'll just read one to you, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Paul writes, Now therefore you, speaking to Gentiles, are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. He's talking about the church. That's us, brothers and sisters. We, the people of God, indwelt by the Spirit, become the temple of God. So Jesus might have been thinking about that as he looks at this physical structure. He's going to think about the church that would be the new temple of God. And in line with this, he might be thinking as he's looking at the temple, how he would soon break down the middle wall of separation, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2 as well, probably a reference to a structure in the temple. He might be thinking, I am soon going to take down that wall that divides Jews and Gentiles, and I will do it through my death. Ephesians 2.14. And then he might have been thinking how the gospel of his kingdom would be preached to all the nations, amazingly beginning at Jerusalem, beginning at Jerusalem, but then extending to the ends of the earth. No doubt he viewed the temple and its sacrifices as types and shadows, types and shadows that were soon to be given way to the substance They were on their way out. The reality was coming. Christ himself, as if he's there on the Mount of Olives, 
And this temple is a great shadow that is cast by Jesus himself. He is the fulfillment of all of those types and shadows of the Old Testament, especially when we're thinking of the temple and the sacrifices. He will offer one sacrifice. When we read about all those sacrifices in the Old Testament, and it's so tedious to us sometimes, it all points us to Christ who offers that one sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Maybe he thought how the veil of the temple, that is the veil that would have separated the holy place between the most holy places, how that would soon be torn in two from top to bottom. We're going to read about that in Mark chapter 15. Torn in two from top to bottom, the veil of the temple. When he would breathe that Friday, when he would breathe his last, when he would finish his work. And as he might be thinking about that, he's then thinking about how he's going to consecrate a new and living way for sinners to have access to God, even bold access to God through the veil. So Hebrews 10, 20, and many other places in Hebrews. This is touching on a lot of things that will be picked up in our study of Hebrews. He might be thinking as he's looking at the temple, and maybe he can see the people there. Maybe he can see priests. I don't know. He might be thinking that the labors of the priests and of the high priests would no longer be required in a matter of days. That all of his people would be priests to God. That's the language in in 1 Peter 2 and in Revelation chapter 5. But especially that he would become our great high priest. No more high priests. Hebrews 4.14 and several other places in Hebrews. Jesus is our great high priest. As he looked at those great buildings, maybe he thought about what he had said to his disciples not long before when he said, I will build something far greater, my church. I will build my church, Matthew 16, 18. And as he looked at those great stones, maybe the thought came to his mind about how God's new spiritual temple wouldn't be built with these magnificent stones but with living stones, with living stones. And how he, the stone which the builders rejected, would become the chief cornerstone. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2. We don't know. I'm just thinking about what might our Lord been thinking as he's there. And we know that he knows he's about to accomplish his redemptive task. One last thing, finally, in light of his discourse, we have good reason to think that our Lord had his second coming in mind as he's sitting there looking at the temple. He had his second coming in mind as he looks at something that's ripe for destruction, soon to be obsolete. He's thinking about the day that he will come back, perhaps, and how on that day he would not only judge the world, but he would make all things new, that there would be a new heaven, and a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, as we read in Revelation 21.2. A new Jerusalem at the end of the age after Christ returns. That's the picture we get. A bride adorned for her husband. And also how in this new heavenly Jerusalem, there would be no temple. For we are told this in Revelation 21, 22, why will there be no temple? For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, Christ himself, are its temple. So as we think of that, 
what might have been on Christ's mind, we say what glory awaits us when Christ returns and when the end comes. Let's pray and give thanks for these things. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these things that we've considered. We thank you that there is that new and living way that we, your children, come to you with boldness and access through Jesus Christ. We thank you for this discourse. We pray that the main lessons would be pressed upon our hearts, that we would live with an urgency and expectancy of Christ's return. And Lord, we thank you that when he returns, that not only will there be judgment, but our salvation will be completed. And we have to look forward to a new heaven and a new earth and that new Jerusalem where we shall dwell with you forever. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.